The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Read first of all in Isaiah chapter 49, the opening verses of the second servant song. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And earlier in Isaiah chapter 11, I'm just assuming you know the context that will save me spending time. And um, the Lord has just spoken in the previous chapter, these chapter divisions are not the most helpful, that he's going to bring down Assyria and bring it very, very low. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And then finally in Luke chapter four at verse 16, and Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'd like in our brief time this morning to reflect on perhaps the most astounding words that we find in the whole of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 49, in the fourth verse, Yahweh has just declared, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. The servant has just spoken of the Lord calling him from the womb making his mouth like a sharp sword, hiding him in the shadow of his hand, making him a polished arrow. 
And then he says, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Discouragement and despondency belong to the very fabric of the life of faith. If you have never known discouragement or despondency, you will. And if you never do, you belong to another world. The Son of God in our flesh experienced deep discouragement and heart despondency. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. We could almost paraphrase my life has been a waste of space. The exigencies of his life and ministry so bore upon his holy humanity that there were times when our Lord Jesus Christ was utterly, utterly in the depths. And you will know those passages throughout the Gospels, especially that depict for us this deep despondency of heart. How long must I remain with you? You can almost feel and taste the pathos of our Lord's words as he is confronted, not just by the hardness and the wickedness of men's hearts, but by the the slowness, the obdurateness of his own disciples. How long must I remain with you? And that remarkable occasion when he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often, how often would I have gathered you to myself? You can almost taste, can't you, the pathos, the heart pathos of the Savior. And what I simply want to reflect on with you this morning is the way the Lord Jesus Christ was enabled in his discouragements and despondencies, nonetheless, to press on in the way given to him by his Father from times eternal. I want to mention three things. Notice, first of all, in the second half of verse 4, he has just said, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with God. And what the servant of the Lord is saying is, notwithstanding my heart despondency, my hope rests in God. He is exhibiting faith, because that's what faith is at its purest. It is trusting God when all the lights have gone out. Later on in chapter 50, at, at the end of the third servant song, we read, let him who walks in the darkness and who has no light yet trust in his God. I, I don't know what it's like to have no light. There have been times in my life as a Christian and in the 40 or so years as a Christian pastor, I've known seasons of discouragement mainly with myself, if I'm honest, times of despondency, 
I'd hope for more. I've never known what it's like for all the lights to go out. But even for our Savior, when all the lights went out for him on Calvary's cross, he never let go the personal pronoun, my God, my God. Faith enabled the Savior in the midst of his trials and troubles, discouragements and sinless despondencies to go on. And that's why faith needs to be nourished and nurtured. We should never take faith for granted. How do we nourish and nurture faith? Not by thinking about faith, but by thinking about Jesus Christ. If you've never read the first volume of John Owen's works, The Glory of Christ, number one, shame on you. <laughs> and number two, do so. We won't allow you to graduate until you do. And one of the great theses throughout that remarkable work, and it is a remarkable work, is Owen's conviction that when God's people are discouraged and despondent and struggling, in any area of life, not least in pastoral ministry, their great need is to behold the glory of Christ. And what we see here is our Lord, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Do you know, if, if, if he couldn't have said that, he couldn't have been our savior. His humanity would have been a sham and a fraud. It wouldn't have been a true humanity. He was not a superman. Calvin speaks in John 1.14, I think, of, of Christ, you know, Kaihologos Arxagenitor. He, he took our wretchednesses, the frailties and wretchednesses of our humanity to himself. And what sustained him was his unyielding trust in God. But then if you look back to chapter 11, you'll notice, secondly, that he was upheld by the Holy Spirit throughout his life, mission, and ministry. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And that's a note that is sounded in a multifaceted number of ways, actually, throughout the scriptures. You, you, you see it at the first servant song, Behold My Servant. Remember the third behold is a triad of beholds. Behold, end of chapter 41, you know, these hinna concessive clauses. Behold the futility of idolatry. Behold the futility of those who give themselves to idolatry. And then behold my servant whom I uphold. I will put my spirit upon him. In the midst of his despondencies and discouragements, the Lord Jesus Christ was upheld by the Holy Spirit. He was the man of the spirit par excellence. Everything he did, he did in the enabling strength of the Holy Spirit. The writer to the Hebrews climaxes it, doesn't he, doesn't he in chapter 9, verse 14, I think, when he says, by the eternal spirit, he offered himself unblemished to God. He couldn't do it but for the Holy Spirit. 
he exemplifies in his life and ministry what it means to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul puts at the end of Galatians 5, and to live in heart dependence on the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the great titles that Paul gives to the Holy Spirit is that he is the helper. It's difficult to translate some of these nuanced Greek words. He is the helper. He is the, the parakletos. But then in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 26, he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Sunantilam banatai, this double compound that's so richly evocative. Go and think about it. And in his weakness, the Spirit helped the Savior. You know, we, we too often talk about being reformed Christians. I think that's gilding the lily. We shouldn't ever try to be reformed. We should try to be godly. But one of the marks of reformed theologians throughout the centuries, whom we thank God for, is that they understood how spirit-dependent the Christian life is. And the great hallmark of a reformed Christian is not that he can recite so-called five points, which should rarely be talked about in reformed circles anyway. Taking five bones out of a body and lionizing them seems a little obscure to me. He understood that the life of faith is marked by being spirit-dependent, living in conscious dependence on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Warfield, isn't it, who, who says Calvin's great contribution to the Reformation was his, his teaching on the Holy Spirit. Calvin wasn't a novel thinker. He was a brilliant systematizer, but in in, volume, in, in book one especially, his, his teaching on the internum testimonium spiritus sancti is just so profound. And Christian ministry relies and depends on the day by day, moment by moment, upholding, enabling help of God the Holy Spirit. You know, that lovely double compound, Sunantilam Banatai, I think beautifully captures, he will stand over against us, but he will come alongside us. We can do it together. We can do it together. And in our extremity, the Lord comes and reminds us of our absolute dependence on him. We should be noted as men of the spirit, filled with the spirit, dependent on the spirit. And in our despondencies, the Holy Spirit comes and breathes new life and fresh life, even simply enabling us to get through a day. I sometimes think we underestimate the wonder that we last another day when all hell is raged against us, when the world, the flesh, and the devil are conspiring every moment of every day to bring us down and to destroy our testimony. You know, to lay your head on your pillow at the end of another day and to say, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, I am found in him. That's a great thing. And it's the Holy Spirit who helps us to do this. But the third thing that sustained 
and enabled the Lord in his despondencies and discouragements to go on is the one I really want to focus on for a few moments. Did you notice what we're told in chapter 11 of Isaiah? The spirit who would rest upon him is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. No man ever lived in the fear of God like Jesus Christ. He lived out his life delighting in the fear of the Lord. And what kept the Savior on track when Satan came with his powerful temptations at the outset of his public ministry and at the end of his public ministry, those bookended statements, if you are the Son of God, come down from the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. What kept our Lord on track? Yes, his faith in God, his dependence on the Holy Spirit, but his heart delight in the fear of the Lord. I can't remember when it was. It, it might, might be 40 years or so ago now, reading John Brown's exposition in 1 Peter 2, 17, that wonderfully, beautifully compact description of the constituent elements of the life of faith, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. It's just beautifully concatenated, isn't it? And Brown spends, if you, if you don't know the expositional commentaries of John Brown, you should. His discourses and sayings of our Lord, three volumes, John 14 through 17. His exposition of John 17, Christ's intercessory, high priestly prayer. One, one Peter uh, in particular. But he says there, what is the fear of the Lord? And he, he said it so simply, but I think so beautifully and profoundly. He says, the fear of the Lord is loving what he loves and hating what he hates. I've never forgotten it. There's more we can say. There's much more we can say. But it brings down, I think, to a crystallized moment what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. It means loving what he loves and hating what he hates because of who he is. It's the fear of the Lord. And the accent, I think, is on of the Lord. It's a bit like when people say to me, uh, you know, Psalm 119 is all about the law, isn't it? I say, no, it's not about the law at all. It's all about God. It's all about Yahweh. I said, you need to understand how to read the Bible. It's the fear of the Lord, the fear of grieving him who has loved us, cherished us, who, who hid his servant in his quiver, who protected and preserved him, who kept him. And most of you, maybe all of you will in coming days, 
find yourselves in the midst of Christian ministry, full of high hopes and expectations. It's good to have high hopes and expectations. The Lord is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. But when you look at the platform, the panorama, the landscape of the prototypical minister of the gospel, Jesus Christ, you see it's a life punctuated with discouragements, despondencies, trials, troubles. In this world, you will have tribulations. And we need to know where to find help. We need to know that we never graduate beyond faith. We need a faith that is enriched day by day as we anchor that faith in the one in whom it resides. You know, we, we think too often about the quality of faith rather than the object of faith. And one of the great notes, as you will know well at the Reformation, was all our hope lies outside of ourselves. The opening words of book three of Calvin's Institutes, all our hope lies extra nos. Great words. Great words, not just because they're Latin, but they're great words outside of ourselves. It's all outside of ourselves. Faith is nourished as we look away English translations don't quite get the point of Hebrews 12, uh, 3, I think. Looking away to Jesus. Looking away to Jesus. Because Satan would have us always look into ourselves in curvatus in se, as Luther would put it. Faith is nourished as we keep our eyes fixed on the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me, who in hypostatic glory took my flesh to himself, that he might in that flesh make atonement for my sin. And then living in dependence, Holy Spirit, recognizing every moment of every day, without you I can do nothing. You know, some of you might be very gifted and very capable but there is absolutely nothing you can do except God be pleased to do it through you. And then to live in the fear of the Lord. You know, if someone asked me, and I'll close with this, if someone asked me, what's the great need of the church today? Well, there isn't one answer, is there? I would be tempted to say our great need is a rediscovery of the fear of God. Loving what he loves, hating what he hates, and embracing the cause by God's grace in doing so. So despondencies and discouragements. Our Savior knew them. They almost overwhelmed him, even to the point he needed, he needed, in his holy, sinless humanity, an angel from heaven to come and help him in the garden. And if he needed that, how much more do you and how much more do I? Let us pray. Who is like unto you, O Lord? You are majestic in holiness. You are awesome in glory. You do great wonders. 
you could accomplish all your holy purposes sovereignly. You could declare and it would be. But you were pleased to take frail flesh and use people like us to accomplish your purposes in this world. Lord, we come before you as as men who are weak and who don't know the half of our weakness. But you are rich in mercy. You are full of grace. You promise to draw near to those who draw near to you. And we ask you, Lord, as we seek to live out our days before your face, in your fear, that we may do so with delight, that when people look at us, they will see men who delight in God. So remember us for good, Lord. We thank you for the seminary. We pray for Jonathan as he leads this work, that he will be kept by your power, kept holy and humble and godly. We pray for all the faculty, for Michael and Sid, Joey, Tony, and all who seek, Lord, and their ways to model the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give these men hearts aligned to your own. And remember these young men. Guard them, Lord, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And at their lowest, remind them that they have a Savior who's gone even lower and who never failed and who is able to help all who come to him. So remember us for good, we pray. Forgive our sins, for they are many and not few. And we pray in our Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.